Hi, I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Before we get started, I'm going to do the thing where I plug my own work. Uh, last weekend, I wrote an open letter to problem patients and published it on Medium. I honestly sobbed while I was writing this letter, and it's a mashup of my own experiences and everything I've learned while doing these interviews. Before I started this podcast, I kind of thought that I would mostly be learning about all of the different unusual cures and coping mechanisms that people had discovered for themselves, but that's not really what I found at all. Instead, I've learned about some really predictable patterns in what it feels like to become sick, and I tried to acknowledge a lot of them in this letter. You can find a link in the episode notes for this show on noendinsight.co, or you can just Google Brianne Bennis Medium, and it will be the most recent post if you want to read it. It's called Dear Problem Patients, an open letter to anyone who's ever felt dismissed by their doctor. Uh, You might have seen it already because I've been talking about it a lot on social media, but if you haven't seen it, I think, or I hope that it will really resonate with you if you're living with chronic illness. Uh, also, here's a quick reminder that I really start that I really that I recently started a Patreon campaign. So if you've been enjoying the show and you have a couple bucks to spare, I'd be so so grateful if you'd sign up as a patron at Patreon.com/NoEndInSight. Today, I'm talking to Jenna Green about degenerative disc disease and multiple sclerosis, and how making meaning from chronic illness is not the same as believing that it happened for a reason. Before we start. Here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. Well, then to get started started, I like to start just by asking people, how was your health as a kid? I was actually a pretty healthy child. Um, I played a lot of sports growing up. I was huge and never athletic by any means, um, like never athletic. I worked my butt off to be, um, to be good. And mm-hmm. I tr- had to, it seemed try twice as hard as the naturally athletic girls, you know, um, uh, I was captain of the varsity softball team and still the slowest one on the team. Yeah. I had to run a mile. Yeah. I was like cheering from the back. Yeah. You know, I would always cheer from the back. Um, and I was loud. I did have um, asthma as a kid, you know, and I still get asthma sometimes as um, like if I get sick or when it's really cold and things. Um, but I was actually very, very healthy, never broke a bone, never had a surgery, like mm-hmm. super healthy, really great childhood, actually really yeah. blessed. Yeah, that's awesome. And like primed to have only good experiences with the medical system so far, it sounds like, right? I feel like. Basically, yeah. I mean, at the time, I was always, I've always been overweight. Um, even when I was captain of RC softball team, I was like over two hundred pounds, and um, you know, that's always been a thing that the doctors will say, "Oh, well, you're just fat, lose weight." Right. Your BMI. Da 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 da. Right. And uh, I was actually was in a car accident like seven years ago. Now, I'm not a bad driver. It was not my fault. I just like to clarify that. Sure. Um. You know, and I was 220 or so at the time, but then I gained weight after the accident with the increased pain and decreased mobility and things. Um, And so many doctors just blew me off as, well, you're heavy, you know, and lose weight and you'll feel better. And I did lose weight. And um, surprise, 
my back pain did not go away. Right. It was not related to whatever your weight happened to be. Right. I didn't have back pain the day before the accident. I had it right after. Yeah. Pretty obvious cause there. Right. There was a triggering moment. Um, But besides that, my experience in the medical community and healthcare and things was pretty straightforward, pretty average. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's sad to say, but I think that the weight related issues are average, too. Yeah, they definitely and unfortunately are. Um, Okay, so you said you had a car accident seven years ago. And at that point, had you had any other health issues or was that kind of an probably unrelated, but your first like body problem? Probably unrelated, yes, but my first body problem. Um, I've always had um, some mild back pain here or there. My my father's actually had back surgery and degenerative disc disease runs in my family. My grandfather's had back surgery. Um, so I did see a chiropractor a lot growing up because my dad very much believes in holistic medicine and things like that. Mm-hmm. So um while I saw the chiropractor frequently, I wouldn't describe myself as having back pain. Sure. Or it didn't really feel sense. like a chronic problem, kind of more of a preventive or occasional kind of thing. Exactly. It was very much a preventative and an occasional type of thing. I'd be like, oh, I, you know, slid into home base wrong or whatever. And, uh, you know, I just get like a quick adjustment and it would be fine. But it was never anything where I was in more pain than needing in Tylenol. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. And so then after the accident, it sounds like this would be the first thing, if not the only thing that happened. That was the first thing that really um, triggered my sciatica pain. I had two bulging discs in my low back after that. I hadn't had an MRI before, so we don't know what it looked like before, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, with the degenerative disc disease, um, I also have that. So they saw that in the first MRI. Um, but you know, that was really the first foray into the medical community. And at the time I thought for sure I wasn't going to be chronic pain. I didn't think I'd live with pain for the rest of my life. Right. I feel like and I, you we know, don't even know that I think before you get into kind of the chronic conditions community, maybe other people know about this, but I didn't know that was even a thing that happened, that there were people who just lived with chronic pain. I don't know. Maybe those are the wrong words, but I feel like it's so not represented in the culture as a common problem that, yeah, when you get in an accident, you think, okay, I've been in an accident and I'll heal. Like, exactly. No, I'm completely with you because I was like 28, 29 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like I can't remember, but like I was, I feel like I was just a baby. I'm for the record, I'm only 35 now. So maybe I wasn't really like that long ago, but um, I was think I was 28 years old. Um, I was very young still. I was very healthy. I was walking, I was walking six miles a day, Mm -hmm. like with my dog. And like, um, I was very active. I didn't really, no, I did not think of chronic pain as being a thing. Like I said, my dad had had back surgery, but for him, it cleared up his pain. Oh, wow. That's fortunate. Yeah. And sure, he has some back pain from time to time, but he had back surgery when I was in high school. And that was scary at the time, for sure. But he is one of the lucky people that walked away from um, back surgery with really very limited pain. And Mm -hmm. he still golfs every weekend and he's very active and he's great about doing his physical therapy and his stretches. He goes to see the chiropractor. I know he manages it well, 
Right. But chronic pain didn't even, no, it didn't even exist to me as a thing. Yeah. It really didn't. Yeah. I, this is making me think too. Like my uh, stepmom had had a couple major accidents before she met my dad. And I like was always aware that her back was something she had to take extra care of, but it's still, it didn't occur to me the way that chronic pain occurs to me now that I know kind of so many more people managing it. It's, it's interesting. It really is. And I, you know, it's just because you can't see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's an invisible illness. Like so many other things that we all deal with. It's invisible. Yeah. Yeah. It's right in that family. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So degenerative disc disease and two bulging discs are identified after the accident. And even if they had somewhat existed before, the pain definitely started or amplified after that accident. Yes, the pain started right after the accident. There was no pain prior to the accident. Now I have chronic um, low back and sciatica pain in my right leg. And so from, okay, I have a couple different timeline questions. So at this point, what were you doing to manage it? Or what did it look like your options were? What did you think for improving quality of life, basically? I saw my chiropractor frequently for the first year, like every other week or so. Um, I tried different massage therapists. Um, I did get a couple of cortisone injections, um, from my pain specialist doctor. They didn't work for me. Any of, none of them worked, unfortunately. No, not one, not even a minute of, of relief to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Was quite disappointing. Um, and were you doing PT as well? Yes. Yes. I did physical therapy. Um, it's funny, like that you ask, cause I'm like, oh yeah, my forgot that one you know I did oh, physical yeah. therapy I did I did all the things right yeah it's funny how things can just like when you've done gone through so many things or gone through so many tests ones that don't stand out are really easy to forget about they just kind of fade into all of the other junk that you were doing for your body basically exactly I'm like oh the foam rolling the therapy uh, yeah oh yeah well I guess I've been doing that for a long time now you know <laughs> yeah lots happening um, okay. And so since I know a little bit more about you, obviously more things started to change at some point. So did you have kind of one, another acute moment or did things happen gradually with your body? New symptom onset. I did have another acute moment. So I had, um, I had pancreatitis on November 1st of 2015. Okay. Um, from gallstones, my gallbladder. I was mm. actually in, in New York City. One of my best friends was running her first marathon, the New York City Marathon. We were there cheering her on, and I passed out at the finish line. Ah. Like the world's most embarrassing friend of all time. Um, yeah. Like she gave me her running blanket because I, I thought I was going to be okay. You know, I was like, I, this is – I, I had already lived in some pain, you know, right? Yeah, and yeah. Pancreatitis is like pretty high level of pain. I highly don't recommend it. Sure. But um, I thought for sure I was going to be okay, and I had to see her finish. Yeah. And then I then I finally convinced. Then my husband and family finally convinced me, like, okay, now we're going to go to urgent care. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, now we can go to urgent care. And then I kind of made it to where like the the gate was where they had blocked off for the runners and the, there was a policeman and stuff. And then I kind of passed out. Yeah. Um, and they were like, it's okay. That happens after you run a marathon. And I look at them <laughs> like you crazy people. I don't run marathons. What is wrong with you? Yeah. You're like, I have nothing to do with this marathon. This is just incidental. I yeah. Like so that's that- our running joke. Now I pass out at marathons and my friend runs them. That's fair. You know, somebody's got, yeah. It. Yeah, but I, I, so I'm from Boston, so I don't live in New York City. So I had pancreatitis there. Um, I ended up 
being discharged and came home and had my gallbladder out a few weeks later here in Boston at Beth Israel. Um, and then a couple weeks after that is when my optic neuritis flared, which was my first um, acute MS symptom, I guess you would call it. Yeah. And so what, like, what, what did that feel like? And what did you think was happening at the time? I thought for sure it was related to the surgery and, you know, with gallbladder surgery and pancreatitis, you're on like a weird limited diet and I wasn't eating a lot. So I thought I, I, I felt really dizzy. I thought I thought I was just dizzy, Yeah, <laughs> which sounds which in in hindsight, it's very different than having like vertigo, which I've only experienced once, I think. But it, it did feel different. Um, and I it felt different than any other kind of dizzy I had been before, but I didn't have better vocabulary to describe it. Yeah, sure. So yeah, when my doc, I called my surgeon's office and they, they were great, but they were like, we don't think this is related to your surgery. Like we just saw you last week. Everything is fine. Like it was a microscopic, sur yeah. laparoscopic surgery, right. you know, like teeny tiny Super little low impact incisions. Right. They sent me home the same day. They're like, you know, but, then they were like, you do need to go to the ER. And I was like, I don't want to. Right. Oh, my God. That even just with your the marathon part of your story, I feel like one thing that can be really hard when your body starts to, I'm going to say, act out is you're like, I just want to participate in my life, whatever that looks like. Like, I don't want to make my symptoms the center of attention, even though, of course, sometimes that majorly backfires right like I was like no I have work to do I'm like my husband is at work like I don't know what you're talking about I'm not going to the hospital right now and my surgeon called me and he was like Jen are you at the hospital right now and I said no I'm at home eating dinner yeah and he was like seriously I'm like yeah I'm heating up a taco he's like go to the hospital he was like you you have to go to the hospital sweetheart I'm like oh fine you know I'm like yeah all right but I'm gonna eat first because you know they're not gonna feed me there right, right. like let's prioritize things it I, I had gone like three weeks without being able to eat real food right and they'd find like I'd finally been able to eat food again and like that's a big deal yeah so I was like no I'm gonna eat something before I go let's yeah. prioritize this um and then I went to the emergency room and they actually were just like it's vertigo go home uh -huh. and if it doesn't clear up like come back and see a neurologist and no surprise it didn't clear up and mm -hmm. as soon as I um did see a neurologist she immediately uh was like you need to have an MRI I mean I saw it in her face in hindsight mm -hmm. she knew exactly what it was yeah um but at the time I didn't take anyone with me to the neurologist and were you was it like um just a like a neurology referral or were you admitted to a neurologist through urgent care or ER? It was an, a neurology referral. Like they gave me a card and said, yeah. you know, go to see a neurologist if you're not right. feeling better by next week, you know, yeah. like, like book an appointment. Um, soon. Right. And I had had my gallbladder out at Beth Israel and um, it's an excellent hospital here in Boston. So I just made an appointment at the Beth Israel neurology department. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And I went by myself because I yeah. had been dizzy for a couple of weeks. So I was like, kind of just driving and like it was terrible in hindsight like really but I was just like yeah well I gotta go do this thing it's yeah fine. you're just making it work yeah I had no idea what was happening for right. real right or what it could have been um so they do I assume a brain MRI and cervical maybe they did a brain and a cervical MRI with and without contrast and uh two lumbar punctures which is super fun mm. uh they tried to do the first one in office and uh they did did not 
go well. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually had my dad with me at that time, learned the lesson there. He doesn't do well with needles. Um, oh. I love my dad. He's great. But like, let's protect him from things. That was my not, family yeah. is super supportive. And my husband and I had just been on vacation. It was the beginning of the new year. So he didn't have a lot of, he didn't have any vacation time built up. So, and my parents work for themselves. So like they have flexible schedules. Right. I also work for myself. So I have a flexible schedule. So, you know, these things. Just need a person. Right. Like these things make chronic illness life a lot easier. I know I'm very lucky. Oh yeah. I know. But yeah. So then they had to reschedule it and do it as an inpatient procedure where I like stayed in the hospital and lied in the bed for six hours and Mm -hmm. then they did it, you know, which is probably for the best. Um, a little gentler. I d- yeah, I definitely recommend it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time this was not so good, but okay. yes. And they did that um, also, did they order that kind of in tandem with the MRI? So was it they like... They did. It, okay. So the, probably, like you say, you saw it in her eyes. She had a pretty strong suspicion and was ordering many tests that are like MS specific, basically. Yeah, she specifically knew I had MS. Um, I'm sure of it. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then they referred me to uh, my current neurologist who is an MS specialist okay. at the Beth Israel. And um, I ended up seeing him the day after my lumbar puncture, the one that actually worked. Yeah. Um, and my mom took me because I convinced my husband, my poor sweet husband, I convinced him that there was, this wasn't a big deal, that there yeah. was nothing wrong because I had convinced myself that too. Right. You're like, this one will be no problem. Like, I'm sure he's just going to tell me something totally benign. I don't need support at this time, whatever it is. Exactly. I was like, oh, we're fine. We had just gone away. It was his 30th birthday. Like we were gone for, for New Year's. He's a New Year, you know, like we yeah. were just like. I was like, it's totally fine. Like, you don't have any vacation. We just, you know, we just went away. Like, it's like January, like, 15th or something, yeah, you know? I'm like, no, dude, go to work. We're fine. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I was I was in denial, personally. Yep. Um, in complete denial. Yeah. I mean, it's understandable. So so you go to the new neurologist. Um, who is, did you know that he was an MS specialist? I did. I yeah. did. Yeah, but I didn't really know anything about right. that. That didn't, just, wasn't super meaningful. Yeah. No, I was just like, yeah, I'm going to go see this neurologist guy mm-hmm. and he's going to tell me that everything's fine. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. and so then what did he tell you? And did you say you brought your mom to that appointment? I did bring yeah. my mom to that appointment because I had just had the lumbar puncture. So they were like, you know, you got to take it easy and yeah. not be upright too much. And by that time, the optic neuritis had actually resolved itself. So okay. again, allowing me to live in the world of denial. It had been over a month. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm like living in this world of denial where everything's obviously fine. Right. And was it constant um, as a symptom while it was happening? It was constant as okay. a symptom in my left eye. So optic neuritis, if you're if your listeners aren't sure is when basically one of your eyes is kind of like constantly twitching mm-hmm. is what it seems like or it looks like yeah. to people. And so it's also so, not focusing kind of, which would contribute to that feeling of not vertigo, but not being exactly. balanced. Exactly. Yeah. It's a very strange feeling. And if you cover the one eye that's optic neuritis, you, you could see okay. So then you think it's probably fine. It's just an eye problem. You know? Yeah, I've had bad vision my whole life. I've been wearing glasses since I was 16. Yeah. You know, I mean, I didn't think of that as a problem per se. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so so you're there, you're with your mom at the, the new neurologist office. 
And did he have all your test results? He did have all my test results. And he spent three hours with me that day, actually. He's an excellent doctor. Um, And I've seen a lot of doctors since. And I still see him. He is my primary um, neurologist. (laughs) Primary neurologist, because now I have more than one. Sure, yeah. Really. You know, really special unicorn, as I like to call myself, because that's oh, way gosh. more fun than like chronic illness patient. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Like I'm a really special unicorn, but yes, he is my primary neurologist, and I see him more than I see my primary care doctor. He essentially coordinates all of my care. Mm-hmm. Actually, like I, everything goes through him. Yeah. And so, were you diagnosed that day? Basically, I was because that's that was the diagnosis day. That was like you very clearly have MS from yeah. your MRIs. Like this is yeah. very typical MS, and you know this is what's going on. You're going to be fine. Like these are your 45 pages of options. I got a whole bag worth of pamphlets as well. But he did. He spent three hours with my mom and I, which um, I can't say I remember really any of it, but I appreciated it a lot at the time, and I knew that it was. Yeah. That that was valuable. Um, but I was definitely in shock. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And especially if you really didn't see it coming and were, which I don't, I mean, some people must, but you're like, everything's been pretty normal. Why would I expect to get some news that might feel really life changing? Right. You know, I really wasn't, I was really living in denial. I really was. I, there was, just I don't mean to sound like I am not an intelligent person because I am, um, but I was just completely ignoring the signs for my own self-preservation. Yeah, yeah. At the time. And that's it's not a healthy way to deal with it, but it, that's what was happening. But it's understandable, I think. Um, yeah. I mean, thankfully, my mom was more, way more prepared than I was. She was like, I knew that was going to happen. And I was like, you did? Really? Yeah. Like when we had talked, when we, I had time to process and we talked about it later, she was like, yes, we are. I did. Yeah. And I was like. No, that doesn't make any sense. And she's like, yeah, it did. It totally made a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. The signs were kind of there if you wanted to see them, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 Um, so then, so what next, basically? So you said that as it happened that your optic neuritis, that flare kind of had come down at the same moment, basically. So how, how did this impact day-to-day life? Like, you know, especially in something that has such a flare cycle. Well... I had to choose um, what type of medication I wanted to start on or if I wanted to start on one. Um, um, I chose to start on one of the most effective medications that was out at the time, which is Tysaprate. It's an infusion every four weeks. So for MS, there's no um, cure, but they have disease-modifying therapies. It's what they're called, DMTs. And there's, I don't even remember how many there are. There's more than 10. There's more than a dozen. Mm-hmm. And um, some of them have been around for longer, but I was 31, like I said, healthy, um, perfectly healthy, perfectly fine. And I thought, well, I want to go on the most effective drug and really like kick this thing to the curb, like not get worse and live my life and be happy and do all the things I want to do. Yeah. So, sure. and my neurologist fully supported that. Um, you know, there are different schools of thought, I think, in the neurology world as to whether or not you should start on one of the less risky drugs that's also less effective or start on the riskier drugs that can be more effective. You know, yeah. there are schools of thought on that. Um, thankfully, my neurologist has always, 
always given me um, all the information that I need and also supported me in my choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <sighs> My insurance did not support me. So I started realizing that um, there was something inherently wrong with the insurance system in our country. That was going to be my <sighs> next question was how was insurance as you navigated this? Yeah, that was uh, that was when I realized there was something inherently wrong with the insurance in this country. And um, they denied it. They said they wanted me to go on a lower effective medication, mm-hmm. fail, fail, which can lead to permanent brain damage and symptoms and hospitalizations and more more costly things, actually. Yeah. And then I could have a better medication or a more effective medication. Right. Yes. And 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 for the record, some people are on the lower um like the earlier dmts and they've been successful on them with no new symptoms for 20 years right and that is great so i don't mean to compare my choices to anyone else's it's completely a personal choice and the thing with ms is that everyone is different all of our medications are um and so everyone is effective differently affected differently by each medication yeah definitely so can't say that this choice will work for me because it worked for you. That's not how this works. Right. Um, you know, so there's no, I'm not, try, I don't want to discount anyone else's choices is what I'm trying to say. But um, for me, I was like, well, no, that's not happening. And thankfully my doctor's office knew what to do. They appealed it immediately. Um, I actually, I showed up like that day that I had my infusion scheduled because they called me that morning and they were like, your infusion has been denied by your insurance. And I was like, oh, bring it on. <laughs> Yeah, like, like, what do we do now? No. Yeah, they, I was like, they don't even know. I was like, you bill me for 20 grand. Bring it on. Bring yeah. It on. So like, you I got real psycho, sassy girl with them. Yeah. I was like, I, I'll take them over on the internet. Yeah. I was like, that, and that was the day. Um, that was the day that I decided I wasn't going to be quiet about this. Yeah. Yeah. And because you realize, like, when something like that happens to you, you realize, oh, this must happen all the time. And when it's happened, when it happens to people who are like maybe worse in a flare than you are and they're just not able to combat it, so they won't. Or when it happens to people who don't have a good relationship with their doctor, so their doctor won't help them with an appeal. Like there's so many things that could make those moments so much worse for somebody that it's like, oh, if I'm actually able to talk about this and fight about this, then like that feels like a really good thing for me to do because fuck, like this just happens. This happens to people all the time. Exactly. That was my thought process. I was like, wait, I have a voice. I can speak. You know, that's not everyone. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I've always been comfortable speaking. Um, talking has always been my favorite sport. That's kind of like our joke besides softball. Mm-hmm. Talking is my favorite sport, right? I love to talk. I essentially talk for a living. Um, you know, I do social media for a living. So I was like, I have this platform. I have, I know how to raise awareness. Mm -hmm. And up until then, I had already decided to share my story because I wanted to make sure that I had one friend that had MS for just um, to back up a little bit. I have one friend, I had one friend the time of my diagnosis that I knew that had MS and I had done the MS walk with her the year before. And that was my only exposure to MS. Mm -hmm. And we weren't terribly close at the time. Um, I watched her dogs and we were friends. But I had learned about the disease through her. Um, but I didn't have a ton of knowledge about it. And like she didn't mention it often, to be honest. Right. We did the MS walk together. Um, 
but I didn't know a lot about what she went through. Yeah, like how it impacted her when you weren't seeing her. Exactly. I did not know about a lot about what she went through at all, and she hadn't shared it online. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, she didn't post about it on Facebook. She didn't share openly about it, and obviously I um, wasn't going to be the one to, like, do that on her behalf. Right. Um, you know, she shared that we were doing the walk together and that she had MS, but she didn't share in like the details that I've started to share now. And she said to me, like, everything happens for a reason. And I said, no, that's not true. Yeah. I said, no. I said, Angie, no. <laughs> I looked at her on my couch here and she was on the couch and she's like, everything happens for a reason. I'm like, you cannot look at me and tell me that you think you like your MS happens for a reason. She said, Maybe my MS happened so I could help you through your MS diagnosis. And I said, that sucks for you. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I said, that's stupid. That sucks for you. Yeah. It's so hard, like, navigating this kind of stuff where it's like, I think it's really important if it helps you to, like, make it mean something. But at the same time, just being like, if we're sick, it's, like, for a greater purpose. Like, that's not necessarily the most comforting idea in the world. Oh, heck no. I for a greater purpose yeah. i think okay let me rephrase that <laughs> i don't think that everything happens for a reason i do think that you can take what has happened to you that is entirely out of your control and not at all your fault yeah for record and you can do something with it yeah you and i totally agree with that something positive you can make something positive happen because of it yeah I would trade my MS in a heartbeat. Yeah. I'm not going to pretend like I wouldn't give it back to the universe. Yeah. Okay? Like, let's not be silly. Just release it. it back. I would totally give it back. Yeah. Have I made some great friends and connections and community? And have I completely changed the vision for what I want to do in my life because of it? Yes. Are all of those things positives that have happened because of my diagnosis or positive that that I've created because of my diagnosis. Yes. Yeah. I still don't believe my diagnosis happened for a reason. Right. I right. I have done a lot of cool things without it. Those don't have to be the same thing. Right. And that's they important. They do not have to be the same thing. So, but I did, I was like, you know, if there is one thing I can do with this diagnosis is that I can talk about it on social media. I can open up and be vulnerable and raise some awareness for this, for people who are going through things that you just don't understand or mm-hmm. you just don't see. Mm-hmm. And who people who, even if they could speak about it, maybe they don't feel comfortable about it, mm-hmm. speaking about it. Because I knew my friend at the time didn't feel comfortable speaking about it in the way that she does now. Yeah. And, and nobody's obligated to share those stories. Like, I think storytelling is super powerful. I'm obviously very in favor of people sharing what they're comfortable with. But, like, I also don't think that every single person needs to be, like, broadcasting it. But Exactly. Yeah. You have to do what's best for you. I think that in all factors of your life, do what is best for you. Um, like no judgment for me whatsoever. I support everyone in their choices, but um, you know, the support that I got after sharing was overwhelming to say the least. Yeah. Um, it's been overwhelming and unbelievable, honestly. I still don't even have words for it and I'm very rarely speechless. Um yeah. Like very rarely speechless. I was nominated for a patient advocacy award and I literally had no, I still have no word. Yeah. I'm still overwhelmed by it. It's been like a couple of weeks now and I wish I had something really cool to say about it. But all I can say is that I'm overwhelmingly honored. Like, yeah. Yeah. I can't believe that that's a thing. Thank you. Like, I'm so grateful for it. But 
you know, I don't, I don't have enough words to say how much that means to me, but it's been, it's been huge and amazing. And if I can continue to do that, if I can share my story to make someone feel not alone, to make someone feel like they, it's okay for them to say something too, yeah. or they're not the only ones, even if we're in different situations, even if we have completely different lives, yeah. we live on the other side of the planet from each other. It's still, chronic illness is lonely. And, you know, it, it is a little bit easier when you know you're not the only one going through something hard. Totally. That's like, I think a lot about like, what am I up to with this podcast? And what would I like to do next kind of or what do I want to do with all this information? And I'm like, I think on the one hand, sure, I think there are a lot of things that need to be changed within medicine and a lot of science that I would love to see advance or research that I would love to see funded. But I think that a lot of the pain that's tied in with chronic illness absolutely has to do with isolation. And like, that's something that we can start to address right now we don't have medical barriers we don't have scientific barriers we don't have any of that it's just like the internet has created this amazing opportunity for us to look for other people who share our experiences so that we can connect over that and like that's incredible that is incredibly powerful it is it's huge i mean people didn't have this 20 years ago and we forget like i had dial-up internet as a kid like that was a big deal that came to town like it was a big deal i could my i very strongly remember my mother saying, do not talk to strangers on the internet. And yeah. now some of my very best friends are strangers on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing just like how quickly that changed. Cause I re- totally remember that too. I think I'm just a couple years younger than you, but it's like right. when I was in middle school and high school, if you kind of ended up with a stranger on your contact list, it was just like, no, never actually meet them. Like don't give them any identifying information. Right. Now it's just like, you know, I think some of my like most, my best support systems are on social media now with literal strangers and that's amazing (laughs) exactly and i've met some of my best friends from the internet in person but like some of them i still have not met and i would still say like one of my best friends in on the internet like just we know i'm like yep that i can always count on them and you're like you don't you've never even met them in person what that's strange you know but um that's the age that we live in it's so there are so many good things that can come from that Mm -hmm. you know i it is really it's something to be grateful for, for sure. It yeah. really is. And to, I think to know that you have that support. Yeah, yeah. And because like quite a few people, quite a few, a few people who I've spoken to either got sick kind of much before even the internet or just before social media, because social media is still relatively new compared to when we kind of, when most people started having internet in their homes. And that really changed the game as well in terms of having access to information. Like, you know, sure. WebMD makes a difference, I guess, but but really more being able to have like online support groups to actually just talk about the day to day experiences and tweet about it or Instagram about it or whatever, like that has transformed communities, I think. Yeah, yeah totally. I remember. So after my MS diagnosis, actually, a couple of weeks later, they had done a CT scan when I went to the um, ER. They okay. didn't do an MRI, but they had done a CT scan and they said, like, I need to follow up with a vascular guy a couple of weeks later. And I had a vascular guy at the BI that had um, seen him, like, for some compression socks before, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I went to him, and they were like, so you have an aneurysm in your interior carotid artery, and we're going to take that out, and we're going to replace it with a vein from your leg that you don't need. And I was like, again, by myself, because I thought this was no big thing. Um, this was, like, very 
full full denial stage here still um yeah like i i was like yeah no i'm not gonna do that i have an appointment across the street with my nutritionist and i'm gonna be late <laughs> so I, I literally like walked out of the office yeah like 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 just a uh, i was like no 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 i don't want to do that like i'm not taking that information in yeah i was like thanks thanks for offering i'm not gonna do that i'm good you have an aneurysm in your crowd already i was like i think it's fine there i'm gonna leave thank you very much exit i'm gonna exit actually now he he, i I, that poor doctor i never did i did see him one more time he did not actually take out my crowd artery though um another doctor did um, okay okay but it, it took me like uh five or six months of processing it and comparing all the options and seeing all of the best doctors and all of the best hospitals here in boston and um the head of surgery at beth israel is an excellent surgeon also a vascular surgeon and i did end up letting him take my carotid artery out but it sounds like terrifying for my leg yeah oh it was the scariest thing i ever did yeah i would say it was very scary um you know, because it's not causing you pain, like your gallbladder. Right. You're like, take that thing out, you know? Yeah. Well, there's like um, a or, cognitive yeah. gap. You're like, if I don't feel, I can't feel the problem. I just have to believe that the problem is there. And that would feel really different. Right. And like, they're showing you this like weird bulge on the ultrasound. And you're like, they're, you know, people don't generally find arteries or aneurysms before you have an issue. And I obviously, I had no issue from it like they did tests they didn't have um like seizures or anything like right my ms was completely unrelated they still they don't know how the aneurysm happened it could have happened in the car accident i could have been born with it right it could have it could have just sporadically happened they ruled out any like aneurysm diseases apparently you can have diseases that give you more aneurysms who know mm-hmm. um you know but i was like no i actually don't think i'm gonna do that thank you very much <laughs> um but I did, I did end up doing it. I did. Apparently you don't need all these veins in your leg. And, um, you know, now I'm like, well, if a vein in my leg can become my carotid artery, then my body is still pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. It's like, sometimes it's so frustrating with how, when you're like, medicine can't do anything. And then sometimes you're like, holy shit, medicine. How did you figure that out? How does that work? That's amazing. Right? It's yeah. It's crazy because the medicine cannot, it can't help my, well, it can help some of my symptoms, um, you know but it can't cure my symptoms they can't they can't even see all of my disease progression on my mris because my mris have been stable since my diagnosis but my disease has progressed Mm -hmm. and i do have new symptoms i have dystonia which is spasms in your feet it's um more typical with um parkinson's disease but Mm -hmm. that's why i said i have more than one neurologist i now have a movement neurologist too because i'm special yeah um they're checking it all so, out i have a movement neurologist yeah i have a movement neurologist and um a primary neurologist and thankfully they work in the same office together but yeah i mean you know some it is frustrating because you're like i'm getting i feel worse than i want to feel and you can't help me but right in so many ways there are so many good things that they can do so yeah. i try and focus on that even though i obviously have my bad days and i get frustrated and yeah which is totally valid um so just since you're talking about symptoms let's like hop back into the timeline for a second so you had started Sorry, on totally an... all over the place no no that's so typical and like interesting stuff happens that way you know straight up timelines sometimes miss some of the good stuff but <laughs> So after diagnosis, you started on an infusion. You had to battle insurance a little bit, but were able to get that approved. Um, 
and up until that point was the optic optic neuritis optical neuritis i should know that i think it's optic neuritis yeah one, either way it's fine but yeah so that guy had been your primary symptom and now in retrospect do you think that you had any other neurological symptoms that you hadn't really kind of noticed or prioritized or was that the only symptom so far i definitely had some fatigue and some cognitive issues especially as i was more tired mm -hmm. but i kind of chalked it up to being really busy i was working really hard you yeah. know i was doing a lot of things yeah yeah it's easy to write <laughs> you know a lot of mean? stuff off i i see it in hindsight where it started and i had more trouble writing when that had always been something super easy to me like i couldn't focus reading as much and um my fatigue it, it i was more tired than i thought i should be but yeah. you know i was like yeah, i'm doing a lot you know i'm doing yeah. a lot burnout it's stress whatever right and i had the back pain and you know um yeah. so i was like oh well my back's been bothering me and i'm doing a lot of yoga like i don't know like i just just thought it was normal yeah. i was like i'm getting older i'm almost 30 i could just probably just gonna be decrepit now i don't know like, yeah no it totally feels that way <laughs> um okay so you're on infusions and how like do, are you still taking the same using the same medication i actually just changed um in May from Tysabri to Ocrevus because Tysabri, which was okay for me, like I said, I had new symptoms, um, but not new disease activity, like mm -hmm. that they could see on my MRI. So it's right. like kind of a yeah. weird, weird catch 22, you know, to say if it is or isn't working for you, but right. No new lesions, but right. dystonia no has lesions. popped up. Did you, right. My did dystonia I popped up um in my feet and then i have it i have it very severely in my feet um a little bit in my shoulder where mm -hmm. you can't it's not visible um mm -hmm. so we don't really treat that right now um and fatigue is much worse um so you know some cognitive issues obviously of pain but when your feet are moving constantly and you already have back pain it's kind of like well of course your back hurts um and yeah. of course your leg hurts like you know, this this all kind of makes sense. I don't know. You can't, it's hard to attribute one to the other. You kind of don't even know. It's like a catch-22. Yeah, it's not like actually, one system. Right. And I had so much fatigue and I didn't really understand how fatigue worked at first because, you know, I thought I could push through things. Um, And yeah. my first anti-fatigue medication didn't do really anything for me. Um, I pushed so hard that I, at one point, just fell trying to sit on my couch. Mm-hmm. I fell from the couch to the floor and I, my two discs in my back that were bulging from the car accident ended up herniating. Ah. So, you know, yeah, no, they really were like, but what else did you do that hurt your back? And I'm like, no, it actually, that's what happened. I fell on the couch. Yeah. Yeah. When your body is already like super tense because you're like fighting neurological symptoms or whatever it is, it's, you know, it's not as robust maybe as it used to be. Right. Little exactly. things can make a big difference. Yeah. And when your discs are already bulging, it's, it's, yeah, it happens, Um, you know. Yeah. But I was like, you know, I knew right away what, I knew right away that something was terribly wrong when yeah. I slipped on the couch. But yeah, Serious so. Pain. And did you, so for herniated discs, what do they do for that? Or what did they do for that for you? 
Um, physical therapy, they want, I was coincided right before my, um, carotid artery surgery. So they were like, well, good, you'll rest. You know, this will be good. Yeah. Um, forced rest. Uh-huh. You know, you're going to rest. I was like, okay, great. And I ended up, um, the pain got v- very bad. I had to go to the hospital at one point cause I couldn't walk to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, like even with the walker that I borrowed from my grandfather for yeah. real, so I borrowed it. Cause I was like, well, he has extra, he's 98 and he's pretty badass old dude but um you know I was like uh this is a problem and uh they did another MRI and uh the spine specialist I saw convinced me to do surgery because the way that the herniated discs were pressing on my nerves I was very likely that I would get a foot drop in my left foot Mm. and this was before my dystonia started so it's kind of ironic that now I'm trying to like get my feet to stop moving and I had surgery to make sure I could keep moving them yeah um you're like you know sometimes you just don't win (laughs) right you're so it didn't help with the pain so to speak I it did clear up some of the pain that's in my left leg Mm -hmm. um but I don't have a foot drop so there's that win yeah Um, you know uh so yeah so then I did have a microdisectomy so it was like carotid artery in May and then a microdisectomy on my back in in September. Wow. It was really That'd be I, an intense time. It was a crazy year. It was a really crazy year. My mom made me promise not to have any more surgery ever again. <laughs> she was yeah. like, "I can't handle this. You've got to stop." Yeah. It's I mean, it's terrifying. Like no matter how much you can be be like, "I've had surgery before. I know that it's a these are really safe procedures, whatever it is." It's still like you know, it's still a moment. Totally. Um, um, okay. And so, so that's kind of like what's going on in terms of disease progression. Um, what, so tell me a little bit about work. So what had you been doing before this all started and how has this, including the car accident, I guess, how has everything impacted your ability to work and your work life in general? Everything has changed. Yeah. Everything has changed. It's completely changed my entire world. Yeah. Um, I had, I'd worked in corporate America and social media marketing, corporate marketing for like a decade. And then six months before my car accident, I decided I was going to freelance and work for myself because mm-hmm. I just, it was like a soul sucking day job and I just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Fair. Um, yeah. I, I mean, like I left my fancy corner office and I freelanced, um, you know, this was like, you know, social media was newer, so it wasn't. Uh, but it was something that brands had finally decided that they needed, right? Businesses had decided that they needed it. Yeah. Um, so, so you didn't have to sell them on the idea, basically, because there was a phase right. where that was necessary. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, some, a little bit, you know, but I also, I still had contacts and a lot of things. I started freelancing and then I left my job. I was also walking dogs for my friend's dog walking business just in the meantime to make money, which yeah. happened at the time of the car accident. And then I cut back on that because of the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had, I did, I had a lot of social media clients when I, when I, my MS symptoms flared, um, I was also selling a direct sales company online and in person. And I, you know, I had like maybe 15 clients and, oh gosh, I lost like so many clients through the flares and the surgeries and things. Yeah. Um, I just, to... I couldn't keep up with it. Yeah. And it wasn't, I I made a big mistake with one, you know, I, the others, I, when the contracts were up, I declined to continue because I couldn't. Yeah. 
Yeah, I when I stopped working initially in 2017, it was I was an editor, and I was at a point where I was like I would read things and I just wasn't even comprehending them, let alone catching errors. And I would like sort of do it, and then I would ask my husband to look it over, but he is not an editor. Like he does not have you know. I was like, do you just see anything obviously wrong with this? And that was at a point where it was like, I can't keep offering this service to people. Like, I don't want to lose everything because I messed up so bad and then I won't be able to do work in the future. Like, it's such a, it's hard. It's hard to navigate that when you're self-employed, basically, with client relationships. Yeah, it's super hard. And I am still self-employed. Um, I just have way less clients. Mm-hmm. And um, I've learned more how to prioritize a little bit prioritize ruthlessly is kind of the term that I like to use because you know you never know how you're going to feel each day yeah um you know and I've been to a lot of therapy to figure all this out like and I'm not saying I'm an expert at it because I still work at it every day I still like I had a pretty good day yesterday and I thought to myself oh I can edit this I can record a video about my activism work and I can edit it and post it on Instagram no oh my goodness no I could not you're like no time to rest I did another thing earlier let's not be crazy town Jenna like come on yeah I'm sorry I I joke with myself but you know um yeah, well, it's really hard when you kind of feel up to doing something to, like, put it off. When there are bad days, if you have a good day, this is definitely an experience that I have, I'll be like, oh, I should just add more to my list today. But, like, it has an impact. Even, you know, I, t- 10 days ago, I think, I, like, my stepmom lives in England. So I was like, oh, I'll have a conversation with her in the morning. So we talked at, like, 7.30, which is us- earlier than I usually start my active day. Like, I'm awake, but I'm usually not engaged right. at that time. And I crashed at four. And I was like, why did yeah. this happen? Why? I haven't had this bad of a crash in quite a while. And it's like, oh, no, it's because you used your brain for more hours than your body is up for, even though you felt fine the whole time. Like, consequences exactly. are hard to manage sometimes. Exactly. And you could do that this week and have completely different consequences. Oh, totally. Totally. Which is one of the super frustrating things about it. One of my Yeah, things. it is. It's- so frustrating and like for me right now I have severe heat intolerance so I've been going outside at 7 a.m because that's the only time I can go outside yeah yeah it's otherwise been I hot. just I can't even function yes it's been terrible and I have some great tools that help me to function um you know and I know a lot of tricks I've got a bracelet I've got cooling wraps I've got all the things right mm-hmm but the bottom line is it's 90 degrees and humid outside here in Boston and I cannot go outside in the middle yeah. of the day. Your body is not up for it. No, I won't be able to function. I feel it's like complete. It brings on a pseudo flare for me. That is just, it feels like a punch in the face, I guess yeah. is the best yeah. way to describe it. It's not fun. Not good. Um, no. Yeah. Understandable. So, okay. So you've decreased your client load basically in the midst of all of this. Mm-hmm. And yep. Do you, I know that this will not, it's obviously like everything has to change constantly. Adaptation will always probably be a part of this. But do you feel like you found a more stable way of working for you? Sometimes yes and sometimes <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I thought I was getting things good and under control. I recently, I launched my first course, which is, you know, part of the things that I love to do, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's affiliate marketing and I've been doing that more and blogging more. And um, because things like that aren't client-based, right. number one, and like once you accomplish them, the it's more of a passive income structure. Right? Yes. So 
it really makes a lot of sense for someone who can't work traditional nine to five like myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I say like being self-employed at the time of when I got sick was such a blessing. Yeah. Because for me, I'm not sure that I would have started my own business after getting sick. Right. But I know that having it gives me a lot of joy. It brings me a lot of joy. I love doing what I do. Yeah. And I think that's part of the struggle for me is that I love it so much that I do want to do it, even when I know that like I need to do something else or rest or prioritize something else. Right. Yeah. So I launched the course and I felt good. And then I changed the meds to um, the Ocrevus because the, the Tysabri was making me feel pretty terrible every month for about a week. And it wasn't when you got the infusion, like, life threatening. But yes, every time I got the infusion, I felt like I had the flu for a week. Mm -hmm. so the Ocrevus is twice a year and I thought well this could maybe give me back some quality of life days right Mm -hmm. and well it turns out that doesn't seem to really be the case um you know but with MS everything is different affects everyone differently um you know I don't know if this is a flare so to say or it's just the effects of my medication we did just change my anti fatigue meds you know it's all about figuring these things out when you don't have an answer unfortunately yeah. there is no answer no and there's no like it's not like a real science experiment because you don't have any you can't really compare it to something else like you can try to no. compare it to your past experiences but other things will have changed too you don't have like constants and a single variable that you can isolate it doesn't really work that way in a body exactly and it's like the test that they do to measure your neurological capabilities with ms it's like can you put one foot in front of the other and walk down the hallway? Well, yes, I can do that. Um, but which is, is great. I'm, I don't mean to knock the fact that I can do that. I'm grateful for that. Like I did have surgery so I could, you know, not have a foot drop. Right. right. But that test doesn't measure whether or not I'm in pain the whole time, whether or not my feet are twitching constantly, how it affects my brain function and my fatigue. Yeah. You know, that test doesn't measure any of those things. Yeah. And I think like that's really interesting the way that you're describing it, because this is something that also comes up with, say, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, where they use the Baton score, which is like nine Mm -hmm. different flexibility tests, basically. And so some people will get a really low score while they're really obviously hypermobile just because their hypermobility is in other places. And so similarly, when you're like, this is a really arbitrary kind of way of quantifying what my body can do that, but I don't know what is necessarily better and like neurological symptoms can vary so much you know based on time of day or how much sleep you got or like other things that might exacerbate it and so that's hard exactly it's like yes i can feel the cold like pinprick on each leg at the same time yes i can feel them on each leg but that's not not to say that each leg isn't constantly moving you know that it and my doctor knows like the it's like the EDS scale or something with MS. It's like your disability scale, basically. And like, I'm like a two, which is mm-hmm. good. Ten is, is you're six feet under. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, two is great, I, but it's, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant to how it actually affects my life. Right, right. When we're trying to manage quality of life in that mix, sometimes it feels like some of the more arbitrary tests aren't really getting at where... The problems will lie for you, kind of. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's great that I can feel both legs. Yeah. But, you know, of course. That doesn't measure whether or not I have control over the movement in my feet. Yeah. 
because I don't, and it doesn't measure the control. Like, and I do get Botox injections for it every three months, mm-hmm. but as the Botox wears off and my feet start start to clamp more, I can't really walk a straight line yeah. down the hallway. So, you know, if we do that test at a different on a different day, mm-hmm. the results are different. Yeah. And do you find the Botox helpful? Have you been doing them for a while? I've been doing it for about the last year since we kind of exasperated all of the um, seizure medications. They weren't really working or making a difference for me. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of them I ended up having like a weird allergic reaction to as well because, you know, I'm special, special unicorn. <laughs> um, but yes, I would say that the Botox helps me a lot, um, but it, it does. It overall increases my quality of life, but it does um, decrease my quality of life about two weeks before the Botox and the week of Botox. I am a pretty miserable, heinous person at that time. And is that from kind of from it wearing off? And then... Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it wears off. Um, it wears off and the system and therefore my dystonia, the feet clamp and... It's more painful. It's harder to sleep. Um, It's harder to walk. It's harder to focus. Yeah. Just everything from that symptom coming back is not great. Yes, exactly. And then when they do the Botox, they do EMGs, like electrocurrents to make sure they're putting it right in the right nerve. Yep. Which definitely hurts more than the Botox injection itself. Because you're like, this is the most irritated nerve in my body that moves constantly. Thank you for stabbing it with some electroshocks. Yeah, yeah. I did have an EMG relatively recently. So I'm I'm extra feeling that right now. (laughs) Right? And you're like, in the bottom of my foot. Thanks. I have yet to kick my neurologist. I would just like to make that a point. I believe I deserve a gold star. Yeah, no. You, like, there's some real involuntary spasms that happen when of course they're just like electric not electrocuting you but basically like it kind of feels like it, it running a current through your nerve like yeah yeah so you have to really like i i like wrench my shoulders just trying to keep still so that they you know don't mess up the botox yeah. in my oh it's man it's rough it's, yeah i don't recommend it to anyone but it does it does give me a good quality of life the dystonia for now it's my best option yeah so i'm grateful for it it is helping the experience is a little unpleasant yeah yeah i i've learned that i I cannot schedule important events around that time like i i my friend's getting married in september and i'm like oh my gosh let me check my botox schedule yeah yeah how can i try to optimize this for being able to attend that event and enjoy it yeah Thankfully, I'm getting Botox two weeks prior, so I'll be fine. But, um, you know, it's not one of those things. You can't go early. Right. You can go late, but then, like, you're more miserable. So you can't go er earlier than three weeks or three months. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So if you had, like, years to plan it, you could kind of tweak that schedule to be perfect. But if you are, if it's, like, less than three months out, there's really nothing you can do. Right. Exactly. So, like, that's the first thing I checked when we got the wedding date was, like, it was nine months in advance and I did all the math yeah which was that in itself was quite the accomplishment for me let's just say that I believe it I believe it there's enough scheduling junk that goes on with this stuff um so a different kind of question line that I just realized we haven't talked about is through this especially with the MS have you looked at other or like what experiments have you done or have you looked at holistic stuff have you found anything helpful I know 
Like, oh my gosh, I, all yeah. of it. So yeah. much stuff can fall into this category, and I know people have wildly different experiences, so I'm happy to hear about stuff that did not work. I'm just curious about, you know, how it all fits in. Totally. I am a big proponent of, like, merging Eastern and Western medicine and trying to make it work for you. Um, for me, acupuncture is the only thing that actually helps my dystonia. Like, it stops the movement completely. It's magical. Wow. Um, but it only stops it while I'm at acupuncture. Yeah, which is obviously not where you can't fully live your life in that moment. Uh, no, they don't let you like take it with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really, can I just um, set an, up an office here in this community acupuncture room? <laughs> yeah, it is totally a community acupuncture room. And I'm like, can I just live in the spot? Like right here? I'm like, can you come home with me perhaps? Um, that sounds weird, but you know, she's very nice the acupuncturist. Uh, yeah, no, that is the only thing that has stopped like stops it and it really does help um me but like i said it doesn't it doesn't last um right. so i do go pretty frequently but it doesn't last and of course it does cost money although it's community acupuncture it's still money yeah yeah um, and when you're doing something like that really frequently it doesn't matter how cheap it is it's going to start to add up right same with massage therapy which i generally call massage torture but i go every week because my muscles get so uh just knotted mm -hmm. like they're so knotted especially in my shoulder because I can really control the movement isn't really visible there in the shoulder muscle the trapezoid I guess it is mm -hmm. but it does it does move um right. so that muscle gets really knotted and I have like my own physical therapy things I've got like this theracane thing that I like constantly am self-massaging and I do like I said I've done a ton of physical therapy and I do my exercises I have my yoga mat out in the rug on the living room floor every day like it just lives there my foam roller you know I do all of those things I've tried every diet yeah um, I do have a nutritionist um, you know I know that for some people diet makes a difference for me it does not um, unfortunately I wish that it did I know that when I eat healthy and drink enough water I generally feel better yeah. um you know I've I've also had all like the gastro tests and liver functions and make sure I didn't have any like gluten intolerance or dairy intolerance I've had all of those tests done too yeah. very thoroughly they test all my vitamins I take all the I take you know a good handful of supplements every day mm -hmm. um and make sure that I take all my vitamins you know I'm definitely not getting enough vitamin D naturally in Boston in the winter or in the summer because I can't go outside right. so totally you know <laughs> yeah I, I am a big proponent of those things. I do like, um, I do like use essential oils, but I'm not, um, I don't think they're going to cure my MS. Like, like right. there's, I think there's a line that, you know, people have to realize that there are things that you can help to improve your life. Um, and I do prefer when someone asks me what's worked for me versus someone saying, you should try this because it cured my best friend's aunt who had MS. Yeah. Years ago. You know, like that. I'm sure you've experienced it. It gets on your nerves a little bit. It's a little rude. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so presumptive because like, because I'm with you, like I'm all about those kinds of experiments and I do them myself all the time. Like I've done so many dietary experiments. I've done so many and had some success with some essential oil stuff, which I think I've talked about on the podcast before. Like I had a chronic runny nose for a literal decade and that like essential oils fix that. And yeah. that's cool, but I don't tell everybody with like a sinus infection that they have to just put like eucalyptus up their nose. Like, <laughs> right. you know, exactly, exactly. I'm like, yes, this does help me, but that's not going to cure everything that happens to you. 
Yeah. And it's so, it's interesting, one, of, like, when healthy people share this stuff. Like, somebody that I know who is very sensitive to, like, stuff that happens in their body. So she'll be like, oh, I was really bloated. So then I, you know, stopped eating onions or whatever. Just, like, really kind of random stuff. She'll be like, I made these four changes and then my bloating went away. So you should try it, too, because it'll help. And I'll be like, I don't think the scale of what you're correcting in your body is, like, aligns with the scale of what's going on in my body. And so while I'm always curious about this kind of stuff, because I am, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting to hear what does help people because I know that it can. But like, none of this stuff has ever been clinically tried. And so suggesting that what helps one person will also help many other people is like pretty baseless at this point. And that's where we run exactly. into trouble. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, you know, I love this idea. I am down to try almost anything, really. I even gave up cheese for a while, which I got to say was torture. Um, I even gave up caffeine one point when I'm not doing that ever again, though. Like, yep. I told my doctor that, like, not even if he cures MS, like, I'm not giving up my coffee. So, like, maybe you'll cure MS. We'll talk about it. But my caffeine in- intake is not the, the bane of my problems here, people. Right. It's not causing this these issues right okay you know but um and i know it comes from a good place of people trying to help i i understand that but i think um it also has an undertone often of like we don't know our bodies best or like oh we've never used the google before um like we used to say that with clients like when they ask questions that they could just google and you're like you know I don't know. I just Googled it. And like, I sent them the Google answer. Like, you yeah. know, like I just use the Google. Yeah. I'm um, not a magician. Right. Like sometimes I just use the Google. Um, it, That was like a running joke when I was in an agency and I still say it and I still say it to all my friends too. I'm yeah. like, oh, you use the Google, yeah. you know? Um, And I'm totally guilty of that. Like I would like a personal experience over what the Google says, but mm-hmm. you know, don't presume that living with this disease in my body for three years, I haven't, read about it or tried it or you know thought of something or researched everything like you know because yeah. it's a it's a little rude it's a little condescending yeah uh, you know. and a way that I know that I hear it sometimes which is like also my own shit but like it can feel like do you think that I'm not trying hard enough to get better like oh yes that's where I when it's a one-off thing a one-off thing from somebody Not that. When it's repeated and it's like, okay, we've had a couple conversations about this now. I understand that you care about me and that's the place that you're coming from. But like, it's starting to feel like you don't think that I'm taking this seriously or you don't think that I am trying to improve my baseline. Like, something else is being communicated by, I don't know, the third unsolicited recommendation. And that's when it tips for me. Amen, my friend. Seriously. Like, let us us quote that. (laughs) forget um if i could remember exactly what you said i would write it all down but i can't don't worry (laughs) there will be a transcript of this episode eventually there there will be a transcript and we will quote that on the internet because it is true it makes you feel and that is and it's on me how i feel right i understand that how i feel when someone is trying to help me is on me Mm -hmm. and i don't i really truly don't believe especially anyone that's in my family or friends that they're trying to be malicious in any way totally i know that they know that i'm trying um, but like, it does make you feel like, you know, do you think I'm not trying hard enough? Like, do you not realize how badly I would love to be able to do X, Y, and Z, or even come to the X event in the middle of the summer in the heat and do these things? I'm like, do you not 
like, and partially some of it is that I think with a chronic illness, we tend to, people who aren't in our daily lives, they don't see what we need to do in order to make it to that event and look good for two hours and feel good for two hours. And then what happens afterwards either. Yeah. And, and it's, I'm totally guilty of not sharing that. And it's not because I'm ashamed of what happens, but it's mostly because when I'm preparing or recovering, I don't have the energy to share about it. Yeah. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And also like some of the stuff becomes normal. Like something that I've kind of been more aware of recently with people in, in my family and my in-laws is like when they ask how I'm doing, and I've been pretty stable for the last, say, five months. So I have a lot of good days. I've just had a run of good days. But when I say that I'm doing well, that doesn't mean that my symptoms are gone. But what they hear when, we, when my husband or I say that I'm doing well, they hear because they want to hear that my symptoms are gone. And so then oh, yeah. when I'm like, yeah. yeah, like I've been doing really well. And I don't know, I just I was just at a wedding, actually. Um, I was in a wedding, which is incredible. It was a good friend of mine from college who has like, who was also living nearby mm-hmm. when I was my sickest. And we had a real learning curve about what some of my body needs were. But she was like, I would, she goes, um, I would love it if you could stand in my wedding. And then she was like, I just want to adjust that. I don't care if you're physically standing. I meant that as a euphemism. Like, you can sit in a chair. You can do. That's very sweet. Yeah. Like, it was That's the best. Sweet. And then she, like, got started getting ready really, really early, which is pretty typical. And she wanted the bridesmaids to be there. And she was just right. like. She was and just like. want to participate, too. Yeah. Course. And she was like, there are going to be couches everywhere. We can bring a cot if you need to just be able to lie down. Like. I want you to be there and I want to make sure that it is supported. But um, so as a side note, that was incredibly accommodating and I'm probably going to write about it at some point. Um, but but back to the other point of like, yeah, I went and I had a good weekend and I attended this wedding and everything went really well. But I flew back Sunday night and I still used a wheelchair at the airport because my ability to walk was pretty impaired after having spent that weekend. And so I would describe it as a good experience. But like. The way that other people hear that doesn't kind of automatically assume that that will include paying for it, if that makes sense. Exactly. Exactly. I also, I went to a conference last year. I did not need my cane at the conference. Everything was pretty close by. I prepared in advance. I had my own hotel room. I slept during workshops that I needed to so I could enjoy ones I wanted to be at. Mm-hmm. I, and and then I got a wheelchair in, on in the airport on the way home, I, I can't physically drag bags and walk through the airport. I, after a weekend at a conference, absolutely not. Yeah. No way. You know, but the, the pictures of me taken were me looking good with makeup on, hair done in a cute outfit with my friends smiling, having fun. Those are all genuine. Of yeah. Of course, I was in pain during that time. I live in chronic pain. Yeah. But like- I did the things I needed to do to manage to be able to enjoy the moments that I could. But you don't see the selfie of me in the wheelchair on the airport ride home because, like, hi, I'm too tired to take a selfie at that point. Yeah. And, like, it's it's not because I'm ashamed that I'm using the wheelchair. It's yeah. really just, like, I don't know, it's become normal for me, too. Right. And I think that's a big part of it about, like, what it looks like when we're kind of self-reporting about this stuff of, like, how we're doing, you know, planning in advance and making sure there will be opportunities to rest is is already going to be on your brain. And if you don't need people's specific input about how that will happen, then like you probably aren't telling every single person that you that asks you about the conference that you napped through some of the sessions because it doesn't feel that important. 
But if someone right. is trying to understand how you ab- actually navigate the world, then they probably assume that you like attended a conference the way that a healthy people would. That exactly. sentence was wrong. They probably assume exactly. I think because they don't know any different, and that's not their fault. And I, I don't wouldn't put. I don't want to place any blame. Yeah. But it is. It's like unless I read a blog post detailing like all the things that I don't even realize that I do. Like when I admitted to you, like I have my yoga mat here and my foam roller and like all these things are nearby because the extra energy it would expend to get it out of the top of the closet in the hallway is too much for me. Yeah, it needs to be available. It needs to be available for me to be able to use it. I mean, like these are the small accommodations I make in my life every single day that I don't ever think about as being different. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't occur to you to explain them as part of your setup in just like a conversation that wasn't rooted in all of this other stuff. Right. Like I'm not going back. We have a two story house. I don't go upstairs after I've gotten dressed for the day, like until I go to bed. Yeah. And it's not because I'm against exercising. (laughs) Um, You know, I do exercise every day, like for the most part. Okay. Let's not every day, but um, But like, yeah, you you use your body when you're able. I use my body as much as I'm able to like, when it's not 90,000 degrees, I would love to take my dog for a W-A-L-K. I can't even say the word. <laughs> you know, um, I do everything that I'm physically capable of doing. And I'm pretty good at knowing my own limits now. Mm-hmm. Sorry, did I mess that up? Yeah, no, that's okay. Um, so, You're pretty good at knowing your own limits now. Yeah, I'm pretty good at knowing my own limits now. But I don't even recognize when I'm doing something that is, um, you know, abnormal for the average person and I'll even say to my husband can you run upstairs and get me a sweater like because he's a healthy able-bodied man yeah and he and he knows now that that's because it will make the rest of my day easier if he runs upstairs and gets me that sweater yeah um yeah it's not about do it if I don't ask him to right it's like not about having someone do stuff for you it's just like hey we're two people who have a life together and Op- the day will be optimized if you handle the tasks that involve running upstairs. Right. If you could optimize that or if you could take out the trash so I don't have to because um, it hurts my back. Like, yeah, that would be that would be helpful to me, you know, and I think especially when we have fatigue and cognitive issues, it's harder for us with a chronic illness to express what will help us. My husband yeah. tries. He certainly does. All of my family and friends try, but sometimes I can't even express what I need that will help me. Yeah. Because I don't actually know. And I'm like, I I got nothing for you right now. I don't know. Yeah. And trying to think through it in a conversation is using up a lot of juice that I don't have. (laughs) Right. I'm like, there's words and some things. And yeah. 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 I am right with you. Um. Is there anything that we have not covered about the whole chronic illness experience that is kind of top of mind for you or that you've thought of but hasn't we haven't kind of gotten to while we've been talking? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I feel like we've been all over the place, but that's like the story of my life. Yeah. um, Yeah. I already felt like we were best friends on the Internet. So there we go. (laughs) I love the Internet. It's perfect. (laughs) Right. I'm like, I talked to all the strangers on the Internet. They're my friends. Yeah. That's it. That's wonderful. That's they're my friends. It's so nice. It's nice to know that you're not alone. I hope that's what people take away from this. And um, you know, I am trying to write more about what I do to make my life better. And I like trying to write more about 
my advocacy work because I think it seems very overwhelming to say like I'm a patient advocate, right? Mm -hmm. Or like I spoke at the state house last week. Uh, actually, I did last week speak at the state house in front of the the senators in their suits and things, and I testified as to why the MS continuity of care bill here in the state of Massachusetts is important, mm -hmm. which is essentially ensuring that people can stay on their MS medications even if they change insurances because mm. like. Like we said, everyone with MS is different. There's a million different MS medications. Changing your medication out of insurance needs and not because that's what your body needs can be very detrimental to your health and overall cost your health insurance a lot more money in the long run. Yeah, so just it makes because of, of how infusions work. Exactly. And because of like, you know, the different types of, there all there's so many variables and honestly, even your doctor can't tell you which one is going to work for you and which one isn't. Right. And it's, it's frustrating when you think, you know, if you have a heart condition, you take heart medicine, yeah. you know, if you have type one diabetes, you take insulin, mm -hmm. but if you have a chronic illness, it's not always that black and white. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like experiments need to be made, need to be exactly. done. Yeah. My and life is an experiment. My doctor doesn't know that this is going to help me. He can give me statistics based on the data that he has Yeah, and we can make an informed decision, yeah. but I don't think that you have to define patient advocacy as a chronic illness patient as like going to the state house and testifying for a bill mm -hmm. that that was cool. And one of the best things that I ever got to do and totally killed me for the entire week afterwards, but it was totally worth it. Yeah, but I think people don't realize that or I want to express that I didn't realize that this was possible, that I started very small. Right. I started speaking out about how I thought inherently like the healthcare system was wrong just on Facebook. Yeah. And I, you know, then I started networking and talking to people about it and sharing photos of myself at infusions and talking about what it was like and sharing about MRIs and things and, um, you know, mentioning what helps me with heat fatigue and, yeah, you know, started connecting with people on Instagram and talking to them and learning about what helps them or, you know, just letting them know that they're not alone, like talking about mindset and how I go to therapy and how I deal with depression and anxiety and being open about those things. Yeah. That's patient advocacy. Yeah. That is. And I, I think that I wasn't defining it in that way to begin with, but I, I was already doing it. You know, I had an MS walk team the first year I was diagnosed with MS and I spoke at the walk and I was like the walk ambassador. And I was like, there is nothing that I could ever do that is cooler than this. And like, well, actually there totally was, but like, that was an awesome yeah. experience and a great like first step. And I had no idea there were all these other programs where you could work with healthcare and lawmakers and the MS society specifically. And like the we go healthcare patient advocacy program is amazing. I had no idea that it even existed until just a little while ago, you know? So I think people don't realize that they can start small and take small actions just to make a really big difference. Because I do think that when you feel like you're making a difference for yourself or for someone else, like your life is a little bit more joy filled. And yeah. I think we all deserve to have joy in our lives. Like no matter if we're still in pain, we're still fatigued. Like, yeah, my feet are still twitching. You know, when I say I'm doing well, I'm having a good day. Yeah. All of those things are still at play. And of course, when I say I'm doing well to my grandmother, she thinks that I feel perfectly fine. Right. And that's okay. That's yeah. okay for her to think. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to like depress anyone, but it's also okay for me to honestly say, 
well, yeah, when I'm having a good day, everything still hurts and I'm, my fatigue is hard and I can't go outside and my feet are twitching and, you know, whatever. Yeah, um, it's just what's but, true. I think sometimes right. that the like pressure to be positive can be a pressure to misrepresent your daily life and that's not helping anybody. So Exactly. Yeah. I like to be positive. I'm mostly optimistic. Yeah. I call myself mostly optimist because some some things I'm a realist about okay and like I know I'm gonna pay for things after I do them like my friend's wedding in September which is thankfully down the street for me yeah that is good um, you know no travel but like exactly there's no travel well I'm not gonna walk there friend let's not be crazy yeah I, I drive to my massage therapist it's around the corner yeah and it's not because I couldn't walk there I certainly could I mean not in the heat but you know I certainly could it's because I couldn't walk back Right. Right. Well, yeah, it's like the whole picture of your whole day, not this one outing. And if you can like white knuckle it through something, there's a lot of things that we could force our bodies to do that probably our bodies would not appreciate in the long run. Right. It's about prioritizing your own self-care and knowing what's best for yourself. But it is. It's okay to say like I'm having a bad day or like I'm having a high pain day. I can still find joy in that high pain day sometimes. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I'm just going to be miserable. Yeah. And, just let know, that like, happen. It's going to happen. I told you, I'm a heinous person around Botox. Right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'm like, this is just a day and I need to find a, like a movie or a TV show that is going to make me cry because I just have a lot of pent up feelings right now. And that's okay, too. But I want to let them out instead of making them fester. Like, Absolutely. That's sometimes just some days. You have to feel those crappy feelings. You have to. Yeah. No one is just radiating positivity 24-7. No, no. And I think, like, people who put that face out exclusively are, that's fine. Like, that's a brand. But also, like, that's, I'm sure that's not reality. Or they're, like, bottling a lot of stuff up. And so it's not going to be reality forever. Right. Like, I'm very honest on my Instagram. Like, I look good in a lot of my photos. Okay. I'm not going to lie. I know I look good. It's like, but you don't look sick. I tried to buy but you don't look sick.com. It's not available. Yeah. But that's not a surprise. Um, but it's such a good hashtag because it's right? exactly the point. Like, we don't always. Yeah. That's not the I'm thing. I'm saying I don't look sick. But like, when I'm having a really bad day, I'm not taking pictures of it. That's what you guys don't get. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be about like censoring. That's also kind of like you say, like, I don't always have energy for that. On days when I'm on the couch, like, I'm not tweeting or I only tweet twice. Like, it's just. I'm not hiding it. It's just the reality of it is that I'm not. Right. And I'm a social media marketing manager. I plan this stuff in advance, you guys. Like, I batch my photos. I have told, I mean, like, I feel like I need to say it more and more, but, like, I say it a lot. Yeah. Like, I batch my photos, you guys. I don't get dressed every day. If I get dressed one day, I'm going to take 15 photos. I have no shame. Okay. And I will, now I've, I try to be cognizant about writing texts that, while it may not correlate with the photo, it correlates with like yesterday, I said, you know, I had a good day. And I thought I could do so many things. And then I realized, no, I can't do all those things. But my what I accomplished today is still good enough. Yeah, because that is the mindset that I'm trying to instill in myself. Mm-hmm. And I need that reminder, I think as much as anyone else might need it, like yeah. whatever I accomplished today was good enough. Yeah. And like the photo associated with it, I looked like like great i look fantastic it wasn't me sleeping on the couch like right yeah i'm not taking photos of myself sleeping on the couch (laughs) not and sure my husband surely is not either yeah so you know like it's not that i'm trying to be unrealistic about what my life looks like and i think it's 
like a trap that we get pulled into sometimes with social media thinking that like oh well so and so looks so good or so and so did all these things and you know and like of course they're highlight reels of your life yeah you know and you can't fall into that comparison trap yeah yeah it's not the whole thing that is yeah. the other side of social media it's okay Pat. exactly that's like the downside is that i think it especially when you're dealing with relation and feeling lonely and you know, it, it's hard to be like, oh, well, look, her having such a good time. And you're like, well, that was three weeks ago and I haven't left my house in six days. But yeah, I had a good time that day. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great picture. It definitely is true. <laughs> right. You know, so I'm sorry. I don't even know if that was really. No. I just got off on a tangent because I. It was good. The prompt that. had been like, what else is on your mind? So that was on my mind. I was like, I feel like I need to say this. So hopefully it was something that someone needed to hear. Yeah. Well, and I think like from kind of where it started, where you're talking about getting into patient advocacy at the beginning, that it can be small. I think I think one of the things about chronic illness, especially, is that we don't have good representation in media right now, I'm sure for all kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. But we kind of as a culture, like life or death situations are pretty well represented. And the monotony of life with chronic illness is not. And so if you either haven't had a life or death experience, which is fine, or if you're like, oh, I don't know if I should talk about this because other people, you know, have it so much worse and I just have like a little bit of back pain or whatever it is, you're not obligated to share your story. But sharing things that feel small, don't, it, that doesn't mean that it will have a small impact. Like that could mean a lot Absolutely. to somebody yes. else who's in that same place. And so. I totally agree with you that, like, advocacy, it just, like, being, having a small audience and sharing your story and connecting with people, like, it can change people's lives. It can absolutely change people's lives. And so there's no need to be like, oh, I'm not there enough to start talking about it or whatever. Right. Like, I'm not chronically ill enough. Like, I I read an article about that. Like, I'm not sick enough to be sick. Yeah. Well, uh, like, what? Like, you yeah. know, but I actually related to everything in the article. Yeah, it can feel that like, way. Oh my gosh, I'm actually this is me. But when you say it out loud, you're like, well, that sounds insane. I mean, because I know I'm sick. Yeah. But you know, like I know I have. When I call myself disabled, I don't mean that I am permanently bedbound. Right. Right. And I like, mean that I need different accommodations. Like, yeah. And I had a very hard time even saying that or asking for the accommodations at first, like at the airport, for example, that was the first time I needed disability accommodations. Mm -hmm. And they look at you and they're like, you're disabled. Yes, I am disabled. Thank you for asking. Yeah. You know, and I have a pink paint. It's pretty, but like, I don't need it all that often, um, thankfully right now. Um, But, you know, there have been times where I do need it. And sometimes I take it with me to the airport just in case. I may need it on the trip, but also because I feel weirdly like I need to justify my disability, which is also, you know, in my own head and therapy. But the more that we talk about these things, I think the more that people will understand that, yes, I might be wheeled next to the 90-year-old lady and I look young and healthy and perfectly good. And I'll make a joke that like, oh, I'm 98, but I look so good for my age, you know, like because I like use a lot of humor in my life just because that's me. Yeah. My personality has nothing to do with my illness, but everything to do with my illness at the same time you know like I'm like my grandpa's 98 like we're on some of the same meds and he's like totally awesome you know so I'm like we're we're I'm 98 just like grandpa we're just twins you know yeah but I think we don't have to 
your feelings are still valid. Your back pain is still valid. Even if you haven't had back surgery, like you don't have to show me your scar. Right. You don't need to have a cane to be in pain. You don't need to like not tell me about your headache just because you know I live in chronic pain. We're friends. I want to hear about how you're doing and gen- I want a genuine answer. I don't want to be treated differently because I have different capabilities than I used to. I think is that is the real the bottom line is that I don't want to be treated differently than I used to be. Mine still wildly capable of a lot of things. It's just not exactly what I was wildly capable of before. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I hear you and agree with you. And internalized ableism is a whole hell of a thing to navigate all the time. <laughs> it's super bizarre, right? It's yeah. super bizarre. It's a weird feeling for all of us, I think. I yeah. everyone I talk to about it, you know. Yeah. But you're you don't look sick. I well, yeah, I know. And I'm not sick, but I'm sick, you know. I'm having yeah. a good day. Yeah. And I you know, and I still, I work, but I know that like, if I was in a traditional nine to five, I would be on disability. Yeah, for sure. It would not work. It would not, it's not possible. It would not be possible in any way. And, um, you know, and I'm not judging my choice or anyone else's choice, Mm -hmm. but I do sometimes feel judged by people because they're like, well, why are you trying so hard? Like, maybe you should just lie down. (laughs) Um, and I'm like, well, Okay, um, you know, I'm going to do what I'm capable of doing. I appreciate you trying to look out for me, but I also need you to trust me that I know what's best for me at this moment. And I need to, like, I need to be confident about my own limits. And sometimes that means pushing them. Like, yeah, that's. Oh, yeah. Like, I might pick up my niece when I will pay for it the next day. But, like, my youngest niece is two. And I'm going to hold her as long as that baby lets me hold her. Yeah. As long as I can hold her, I'm going to pick her up. And I'm not, like. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm going to pay for it. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. Because for me, like those, those few minutes of joy are worth the the few minutes of, or hours or days of pain, like whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing about autonomy, even though it's like other people may have stronger opinions and patients too. Patients who have similar conditions will have strong opinions that come from how they're handling their disease. And those things can butt up in addition to healthy people being like, I just want to see you take care of yourself. That's like, right. That's all great. And we still all get to have autonomy to figure out how to have the best balance of like mental health and physical health. Right. You do what you need to do for your health conditions. I'll do what I need to do for my health conditions. They're different. You know, even if they were the exact same, we're still different people. I, I'm not going to judge your choices. I, you know, I think that like, not comparing my illness to yours, like not, you know, not comparing things you see on the internet. It's a valuable lesson. And I don't think I was very cognizant of it before I got sick. Oh, yeah. No, definitely not. I definitely wasn't. Like, ugh, I'm sure I was terrible. I, I'm positive I was terrible. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, hey, I'm still sometimes terrible. I'm not saying I'm not. Yeah, but sure. I'm trying. So, you know. That's where we're at. We're doing the best that we can. That's all we can do. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about absolutely all of the things. <laughs> thank you. It's this perfect. So- <laughs> thank you. I really am like, thank you for being my stranger friend on the internet. This is great. I had a great time. Thank you for listening to episode 49 of No End in Sight. 
You can find Jenna on Instagram at the Jenna Green, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Venice B. And of course, you can find this show on Instagram at no.n.in.site.pod. As I keep saying, I've been posting each episode as a story, but I haven't posted to the main feed in a while because I'm so behind on transcripts, as you know. But of course, the whole reason that I've started a Patreon account is to help with those transcripts. So I'll go ahead and plug that again. It's patreon.com slash no end in sight. Next week is my 50th episode, which feels huge. I'm actually going to use this occasion to do some follow-up about my own health story because I know so much more than I did a year ago, even though I'm not sure anything has changed. So make sure you subscribe in your podcast app to find out when new episodes are available. And if you've been enjoying the show, I'd be so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts so that other people know what to expect. I'm also about to start another round of interviews for the podcast, so if you've been thinking about sharing your story, then now's the time. Just head to knowandinsight.co and click share your story. It still says that I'm on hiatus, but that's a lie. So if you fill out the interest form, I'll send you an email with booking details within a couple days. On the show, I've talked to a lot of white cis women in their 20s and 30s, um, also mostly who don't have kids. Somebody had flagged that for me. Um, So I'd particularly love to hear from people with other perspectives. As usual, don't forget that I have a small Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. It's quiet but growing, and you'll even find a few podcast guests in the group. And finally, this podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When I'm up for it, I make simple modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang in your home. I've got some fun fall patterns in the shop and dozens of very simple icons that you can customize to your heart's content. I'd love it if you checked us out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.